welcome to episode 21 of the Psychic Matters podcast, a Halloween special, The Lady Prickers, written and narrated by Anne Teato. I'm standing at the edge of the village pond in Wickhamskeith, in the heart of the East Anglian countryside, an area in the east of England. The village of Wickhamskeith is at least a thousand years old and mentioned in the Magna Carta of 1215. This is still a village of many old buildings and straw-thatch-roofed farmhouses, some dating back hundreds of years. This pond is known locally as the Grimmer short form for Grim Mere, and in the 1600s, this pond was the very centre of village life here. On common land, it was a communal facility for the use of the whole village. Cartwheels would have been soaked here to prevent them from shrinking, and villagers would have fished for their supper, washed their clothes, or bought their cattle to drink. I was born in East Anglia, and grew up here, nurtured by its woods, golden cornfields and sparkling rivers. It was a happy childhood, full of friends, beautiful people and stunning scenery. But East Anglia has a brutal and sinister history. This area of England was once riddled with witchcraft, and the legacy of witchcraft is so ingrained in the history of these lands that for a long time this entire region was unable to shake off the stigma and association with witches, witchcraft and witch hunting. In 1645, this placid village pond had another sinister purpose. It was the place where sadistic witchfinder general Matthew Hopkins swam witches. Vast crowds would come from miles around, standing four or five deep around the outskirts of this pond. Victims' right thumb would be tied to their left big toe, a rope would be tied around their waist, and as the crowd jeered, they would be thrown into the water. If the suspected witch sank, they were innocent. If they floated, they were guilty. Proof that the water of their baptism had rejected their corrupted soul. As more and more witches were brought to trial, the public looked for protection against such evils. People turned to the church or purchased bellamine jars from local cunning folk. These witch bottles were made from salt-glazed stoneware, each with a distinctive bearded face upon it. They were filled with various objects, human urine, bent nails, hair, and they were supposed to benefit the owners and harm their enemies. People would hide good luck charms in walls and chimneys, silver coins, shoes, and horse skulls, even witches' brooms. It was common enough practice, shocking as it sounds now, to hole up a cat alive in the wall of a house to ward off witches. All across Europe, people were being accused and executed at alarming rates. But how did witchcraft take such a hold? Who were these so-called witches, and what sorts of things were they being accused of? What proof was there? 
And how did the notoriously brutal and vicious witchfinder general, Matthew Hopkins, become so feared and so admired? To seek answers, we need to go back in history and examine the politics of the time, the superstitions of the age and the malleability of the people ruled by a church who dominated through fear and control. James Stuart became King of Scotland in 1567. He was known as the Cradle King, having taken the throne at the age of 13 months after his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was forced to abdicate in his favour. At age 36, he became King of England and Ireland as James I. He ruled both kingdoms and was a gifted scholar, fluent in four languages. He encouraged learning and the advancement of science. It was under his patronage that William Harvey laid the foundations of modern anatomy with his revolutionary theory of blood circulation, overturning 1,500 years of time-honoured medical knowledge. Francis Bacon laid the foundation for all science by compartmentalising the sciences and formulating the scientific method. Science, technology and medicine are all deeply indebted to those individuals who thrived under James's rule. Throughout the 16th century, England had veered between Protestant Reformation and Catholic Counter-Reformation. As the aftershocks of religious division extended across Europe, fear spread that the Day of Judgment was nigh. Catholics viewed the rift as a sign that the Antichrist was increasing his works in the world, while Protestants saw the corruption of the Catholic Church as proof that the devil was near. As a result, there were two competing versions of the Holy Scriptures – the Geneva Bible, which was loved by Puritans but was anti-royal, and the Bishop's Bible, which was pro-royal but whose text was pompous, obscure and difficult to comprehend. King James wanted to mend the religious division and prove his godliness, so he set about writing the King James Bible. An enormous translation committee of 54 scholars were enlisted to write it, and by the mid-1600s it had effectively replaced all of its predecessors and came to be the Bible of the English-speaking world. It was a book created by the world in which it was made. Its language is full of mystery and grace, freedom and redemption, bringing elements of beauty kindness and goodness into the lives of those who absorb its words. It taught that there was someone there looking after you, someone you could rely on, someone you could talk to. But this is matched by an equally fierce insistence on vengeance and control. The authority of a church with this book in its hand also became a source of fear. Not just awe and reverence, but real fear. People were petrified of being seen to be doing something wrong. The domination of the church and the power of local preachers to really control their congregations was used to terrify the weak, creating social anxiety on a massive scale. 
parish ministers and government authorities sought to create a godly state in which everyone worshipped correctly and sin and ungodliness were wiped out. Add to the mix the rise of Puritanism within the Church of England. The Puritans believed the Church of England was too similar to the Roman Catholic Church and should eliminate ceremonies and practices not rooted in the Bible. Sometimes known as precisionists, the name Puritan was a term of contempt assigned to the movement by its enemies. Many priests at that time were barely literate and often very poor. They were employed also by more than one parish and so they moved around often, which prevented them from forming deep community roots. They were also immune to certain penalties of the civil law, which fed anti-clerical hostility and contributed to their isolation from the spiritual needs of the people. A lot of Puritanism got out of hand, creating an atmosphere which saw the devil everywhere. Scottish Parliament criminalised witchcraft in 1563, just before James was born. But even this did not link witchcraft with the devil or with religious heresy, but only condemned death those who committed murder. Whilst the rest of Europe burned witches, the 1563 Act only prescribed death by hanging for those who shall use practice or exercise any witchcraft, enchantment, charm or sorcery, whereby any person shall happen to be killed or destroyed. Sorry, couldn't help it. <laughs> Lesser witchcraft offences were punishable by up to a year's imprisonment or a short time in the pillory. King James, however was a thoroughly modern and intelligent ruler, responsible for much of the forward thinking of the day. So how is it even possible that he could foster and encourage such a backwards belief as the power of witches? Up to the 14th century, we lived alongside magic. Magic at the time was merely a cause for wonder and was very much accepted in this part of the world. Throughout the Middle Ages, white witches working as herbalists and midwives enjoyed the mysticism that surrounded them. Even kings took their advice. But King James had an obsession with witchcraft. Intuitives at the time had predicted the death of his mother and spoken in secret of having seen her bloody head dancing in the air. In 1587, when James was 20, his mother was beheaded. Two years later, James was betrothed to Anne of Denmark, but she almost died in a violent tempest as she sailed across the North Sea to meet her new husband. James chivalrously sailed over to Denmark to collect her, and on their return journey, the royal fleet was battered by more storms and one of the ships was lost. Fearing for their lives, James immediately placed the blame on witches, claiming that they must have cast evil spells upon his fleet. As soon as they reached Scotland, James ordered a witch hunt on a scale never been seen before. 
at least 70 suspects were rounded up in the coastal town of North Berwick on suspicion of raising a storm to destroy James and his new bride. Many of the suspects were respected elderly people who strongly denied the accusations. Because they refused to confess, they were horrifically tortured. One was a woman called Agnes Sampson. Her head and body hair were shaven. She was fastened to the wall of her cell by a witch's bridle, an iron instrument with four sharp prongs forced into the mouth, so that two prongs pressed against the tongue and two others against the cheeks. She was kept without sleep and thrown with a rope around her head. A fellow suspect, John Fian, a much-respected elderly schoolmaster and scholar, had his fingernails forcibly extracted. Iron pins were then thrust into the ends of his fingers. He was forced to wear an iron boot on his lower leg which crushed his tibia and fibula. It must have been terrifying to have been forced to undergo such atrocities and it is unsurprising that all 70 suspects eventually confessed to concocting spells and rituals to conjure up the storm. They would have been driven half mad with extreme pain and terrible distress and they confessed to such things as having sent devils to climb up the keel of the ship. They also confessed that 200 witches had sailed in sieves to the church at North Berwick on Halloween night where the devil preached to them and helped them to plot the king's destruction. As soon as the North Berwick trials had ended, James commissioned the writing of a pamphlet called News from Scotland, which told the whole story in scandalised language aimed at intensifying fear of witches. In 1657, he published a treatise on witchcraft called Demonology, which literally means the science of the demons. Its purpose was to convince doubters of the existence of witchcraft and to inspire those who persecuted witches with new vigour and determination. To be a king was to be next to God, and the fact that the treaties had been written by a king made it enormously influential. Demonology explains the way the devil operated in the world. He was the leader of fallen angels who had become demons. These demons made pacts with people and granted them powers to work harmful magic. According to James's book, Witchcraft was a secret conspiracy between humans and demons who were out to do all the harm they could. Against this conspiracy, the faithful's only hope was to appeal to God, and especially to the God-given powers of kings like James. Cases of witchcraft began to multiply at an alarming rate. During the first year of his reign, demonology was reprinted twice, prompting a rash of similar pamphlets which helped to whip up the popular fear of witches. The state controlled the printing industry, so the pamphlets became one of the most valuable means by which James and his government could manipulate public opinion. 
James believed that English law was not strict enough in prosecuting the crime. He wanted the practice of any form of magic to be severely punished, regardless of whether or not it had caused harm to other people. The Witchcraft Act of 1604 made hanging mandatory for a first offence of witchcraft. Playwright Christopher Marlowe in 1605 published his dark morality play The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr Faustus. It was one of the most shocking portrayals of witchcraft ever to be performed. Some members of the audience said that real devils had appeared amongst the actors and they were so aghast at the horrors that unfolded before them on stage that they claimed to have been driven mad by it. The most famous of all literary works inspired by witchcraft was Shakespeare's Macbeth. Deliberately short in length because King James was known to have very little patience for sitting through long plays, it is significant that the occasion of its inaugural performance in 1606 was a visit by Queen Anne's brother, the King of Denmark, given that it was James's voyage to his wife's native land that had prompted his obsession with witchcraft. Shakespeare wove in several references to that voyage in the play, such as when the first witch claims that she set sail in a sieve and the line, Though his bark cannot be lost, yet it shall be tempest-tossed, almost certainly alluded to James's near-death experience in 1589. All the leaders of the English judiciary would of course have been present in the audience at that time and the play instilled further fear among those watching that witchcraft was not just a satanic confederacy but a conspiracy against the state. Such was the background of politics and history at the time. England was divided and the power of the church was immense. Religion became part of the vernacular. The King James Bible began to become part of our everyday speech. We speak the words of this Bible when we say things like we are at death's door or at our wit's end. We have gone through a baptism of fire or are about to bite the dust. If we are buttering someone up or casting the first stone, the King James Bible is speaking through us. All these phrases and many more have been transmitted to us by the translators who did their incredible work over 400 years ago. There was a huge culture gap between the common folk and the elite. Locals talked about the devil's ability to raise storms, kill livestock and spread deadly illness and that he was recruiting secret agents to do his bidding. These secret agents were witches and the authorities believed they had to be eradicated for the sake of the kingdom. The county of Suffolk in East Anglia was, at this time, one of the most intensively farmed areas in England, its agriculture based on dairy produce. A significant number of the Suffolk cases refer to the bewitching of livestock, particularly cattle, as well as disputes over butter and cheese. Witches were accused of making children vomit pins and nails or infesting others with lice. 
causing carts to collapse or chimneys to fall down. Some people genuinely believed they could cast spells. In 1597, a woman called Marion Grant used to cure cattle by casting south-running water on them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and the name of Christensday, which was the name of an angel or fairy queen in folklore. In these puritanical times, women were required to judge themselves and their behaviour. For a few women, such as Marion Grant, who cured cattle, self-definition as a witch could be a form of empowerment. Others experienced feelings of guilt, remorse and shame. Males dominated and women were subservient, viewed in a lower social ranking compared to their husbands. If women challenged the status quo, the community around them reacted by using witchcraft as a means to control their behaviour. Women were expected to put up with violence from their husbands. English common law at that time permitted a man to beat his wife as long as it wasn't fatal and the woman was expected to accept the beatings as her due. It is likely that in many instances women did not possess the vocabulary to describe a horrific experience such as a rape. Instead, women believed they were guilty of witchcraft, describing themselves as having slept with the devil. They saw themselves at fault and blamed themselves for what had happened. Infanticide, killing your children, was considered a crime against God and nature, but many women considered and indeed carried out infanticide due to extremes of poverty. Most would have been unmarried mothers malnourished domestic servants who could not afford to bring up a child and were forced to kill them in an act of sheer desperation. Many of these desperate women then made a pact with the devil as a way to try to better their lives. It was commonly believed that the devil could bring his servants money and other rewards and so some made a conscious decision to turn to witchcraft as a solution to their poverty and their powerlessness. Some of them may even have been open about their activities as a way of achieving status in the village, status which for poor women was impossible to achieve in any other way. As the witch-hunting momentum grew, self-appointed witch-finder generals sprung up around Britain, devoted to extracting confessions of guilt. People were understandably petrified of being accused of witchcraft themselves. They would point the finger at each other until a hysteria or mob mentality took over. Villagers all over England thought they were doing good by rooting witchcraft out in their communities. But who were the people they singled out? Older women, marginalised women... Widows, midwives, herbalists, the elderly, quarrelsome females, those with dementia, especially those living alone or who were poor, sometimes children. Some were women who were involved in magical healing, but they were a very small minority. Anyone who was intuitive or gifted, innocent old ladies and men. People were very ready to condemn their neighbours. 
Not many stood back and said, no, no, she's just the village midwife. Once accused, nobody stood up for you because they were terrified of being condemned as a collaborator themselves. Begging was a standard method of survival which lay at the root of many witchcraft accusations and beggars were often blamed for the misfortunes that occurred after they were refused help. More often than not, accusations of witchcraft resulted from neighbourly disagreements inextricably bound to a deep-rooted fear of malevolent magic and the devil. A witch hunt usually began with a misfortune. A failed harvest, a sick cow, a stillborn child. The community blamed witches. Thousands under torture confessed and then implicated other people. Men could be accused too, although it was thought that women were easier targets for the devil's influence and 80% of those tried in Britain were women but literally no one was safe from an accusation of witchcraft, not even clergymen. In the year 1620, a baby was born in the village of Wenham Magna, otherwise known as Great Wenham in Suffolk. The baby was the fourth son of six children born to James Hopkins, a very popular Puritan clergyman and vicar of St John's Church. James christened his newborn son Matthew, a biblical name, meaning gift of God. As Matthew grew up, he was indoctrinated into the Puritan religion. Puritans were strongly opposed to sensual pleasures and were strong advocates of propriety, modesty and decorum. Women wore dresses that covered up everything from their necks to the floor, their hair braided into a tight bun. Pointless enjoyment was frowned upon. Most sports were banned. Many inns and theatres were closed down. Swearing was punished with a fine or imprisonment. And one day every month was a fast day. You did not eat all day. It was a rigid and disciplined lifestyle. In the early 1640s, Matthew Hopkins, now grown up, moved to Manningtree in Essex, a town on the River Stour, about ten miles from Wenham. Hopkins' father James had died and Matthew used his recently acquired inheritance of 100 marks to establish himself as a gentleman and he bought the Thorn Inn in Missley. Content to live off his inheritance, he did not go to university or embark on a professional career. One day, while sitting at an open window, Hopkins overheard women outside discussing their meetings with the devil. He leapt out of his seat, and together with an accomplice named John Stern, they apprehended the women and brought them into the Thorn Inn for interrogation. As a young adult raised in the church, he came to see it as his duty to rid England of witches. Thus began a three-year reign of terror across the region of East Anglia. Matthew Hopkins became the most notorious witchfinder general, responsible for one-fifth of the total number of executions in England. He was a fanatic, claiming to be officially commissioned by Parliament 
even though he wasn't, and he claimed his brief was to uncover and prosecute witches, and if his services were needed outside of East Anglia, he would travel further afield. He also worked, when invited to do so, in parts of Northamptonshire and Bedfordshire. From each town he visited, he received excellent pay. The more witches he rooted out, tried and executed on the flimsiest of evidence, the more Hopkins grew rich. It was in his own interest to find as many witches as possible, and in doing so, proved that his made-up role of witchfinder general was a necessity. The Suffolk town of Ipswich had to introduce a tax because they had so many witches the jail was full and someone had to pay the jailer because it was a private industry. Ipswich and the town of Stowmarket each paid Hopkins the sum of £21, which at the time was an incredible amount of money. Hopkins developed and stole several methods for detecting witches, all of which he laid out in his book the discovery of witches. Although the use of torture to extract a confession was illegal in England, less formal types of torture were often used at a local level and presided over by a magistrate or a local constable. Hopkins believed that witches fed their familiars, animals or hybrids of animals that would accompany them in their evil practices with their own blood from a teat hidden in a secret place on the body. By keeping the witch under guard, this would ensure that their familiars would not be able to feed from the witch, thereby depriving the witches of their alleged capabilities. In a society which prized modesty, suspected witches would be stripped naked in public, and their heads and all body hair would be shaved off, and they would be handled all over their bodies. Every orifice searched by local matrons or midwives, or sometimes by Matthew Hopkins himself, who looked for suspicious marks or growths that might be teats for suckling imps. This was humiliating sexual abuse, and in such Puritan times, the explicit content of the trials both shocked and excited people. Suspects would then be locked away in prison cells, with windows boarded up to deny the women sunlight. They would not know whether it was night or day. Food was poor or non-existent. The accused would be walked back and forth back and forth, until exhausted and then denied rest. Weights, some as much as £30 each, would be manacled to their limbs to tire them further. Ordinary townspeople would man a roster of six-hour shifts for the entire duration of the witch's incarceration, 24 hours a day doing their duty by denying sleep to the women or young girls held in the cells and constantly abusing, accusing or condemning them. After about three days without sleep, the suspect would lose the ability to resist their questioners and would start to give names of other so-called witches or to hallucinate, agreeing to whatever the accusers put to them, or they would invent stories of their underworld activities, leading to many confessions, including bizarre details like sailing in sieves. 
these were not sober accounts of real activities, but they were fantasies concocted by confused, despairing and terrified women and men searching desperately for any answer that would satisfy their interrogators. Another of Matthew Hopkins' methods of extracting a confession was by pricking a witch. Among his entourage were a band of men known as lady prickers. They were a specialist group of professional prickers, well respected and established. They could command hefty fees, six shillings a day for maintenance and six pounds for every witch identified. They would strip the victim naked, suspending her one hand's length from the ground, and in front of a baying crowd would shave every hair from her body. They would rub their hands all over the victim, looking for something called the devil's mark, a place that would not feel pain or bleed when pricked. This was believed to be the permanent marking of the devil on his initiates to seal their obedience and service to him devil apparently created the mark by either licking them or raking his claw across their flesh or by making a blue or red brand using a hot iron. The devil's mark or witch's mark would have included moles, skin tags, rashes, insect bites and insensitive patches of skin. Often the mark was said to be hidden in areas such as the armpits, under the eyelids or in the private parts or cavities. Protests from the victims that the marks were natural were ignored. The lady prickers would drive pins into scars, calluses or thickened areas of the skin. These weren't little dressmaker pins. They were dagger-like implements with a thin blade or thick handmade spikes several inches long thrust into the flesh deep to the head. If after stripping and shaving, the accused witch was found to have no blemishes, the pins were simply driven into her body until an insensitive area was found. In some cases, the repeated prodding numbed the area. In other cases, the victims momentarily passed out and seemingly no longer reacted to pain. Because of the fees on offer, most prickers use fraudulent methods. Some of the devices had retractable points, so it only appeared as if they had pierced the suspected witch's skin, and the witch would not have felt a thing. Other specially designed needles had a sharp end and a blunt end. Through sleight of hand, the sharp end could be used on normal flesh, drawing blood and causing pain, while the unseen dull end would be used on a supposed witch's mark. Incredibly, these pricking tests were considered as safe in court as modern DNA tests. As a capital offence, witchcraft trials in England were held before a judge and jury under the common law system, during which evidence against the accused would have been presented. One piece of evidence in all witch trials that proved their guilt is the confession The trials would have been seen as fair because these people had confessed. Court records from the time reveal extraordinary stories of witches flying out of windows on broomsticks or cavorting with satanic imps. 
Court cases were seen by the public as entertainment and merchants lined the streets to sell their wares. Ballad sellers performed and crowds would turn out in their hundreds to see the wicked punished. The pinnacle of Matthew Hopkins' career was the witch trial of Bury St Edmunds where he had 18 witches executed by hanging on the same day. It was the single largest witch trial ever held in England. Prior to the trial in Bury, the largest witch trial had been in 1612 in Pendle, Lancashire, when 11 people were tried and 10 found guilty and hanged. The 18 accused witches in Bury would then, after the court cases, been taken to a holding place where their fingernails or some hair would be snipped off. It was believed that if you died incomplete, you could not make it to heaven, and if you were not whole when you died, then you would not be able to come back as a witch in the next life. Heretics would have been burned for the very same reason, so that their body was corrupt when they passed from this world. To be hanged in the 16th century was a horrible and brutal thing. There was no such thing as a humane approach to hanging. The gallows were not permanent, but were erected specifically for the occasion. The execution was public, and those to be executed knelt or stood at the foot of the gallows, while the executioner placed a noose around their necks. A ladder was then placed against the crossbeam of the gallows, and the executioner would sling the first victim across his shoulder and climb the ladder. He then tied the other end of the noose to the crossbeam and unceremoniously threw the victim to their death. Often, death was not instantaneous or quick. The victim would kick and twist at the end of the rope as they slowly strangled to death, often urinating or defecating as they choked. Normally, at most executions, there would be a clergyman in attendance, but not for witches. They had to pray for their own souls. Two magistrates on horseback would look on to ensure that the letter of the law was enforced. On August 27, 1645, in front of a massive crowd in Bury St Edmunds, Suffolk, 18 suspected witches knelt in front of the scaffold. The bellman or crier called out their names and details of their crimes. They were Anne Alderman, Rebecca Morris, Mary Bacon, Mary Close, Sarah Spindler, Jane Linstead, Mary Everard, Mary Fuller, Susan Manners, Jane Rivet, Mary Skipper, Mary Smith, Marjorie Sparham, Catherine Tooley, Anne Leach, Anne Wright, Thomas Everard, and John Lowes, the 80-year-old vicar of Branston. After death, the bodies would have been taken down from the scaffold, 
returned to their hometowns and buried in unconsecrated ground. The corpse would usually have been pinioned in the grave with stakes, metal pins or large rocks. This was to prevent the victim from rising on the Day of Judgment and was thought to stop their ghost from walking. All of the Berry witches were convicted and hanged almost immediately. But the sheer scale of the trial began to cast doubt on the validity of Matthew Hopkins, the witchfinder general, due to his detection methods. Following the executions at Berry, he gained a strong opposition. A special commission was drawn up by the government to scrutinise the trials. People began to question what was happening. They were sceptical about the evidence being presented in courts and condemned the witchfinders for their methods, reminding them that the swimming trial was forbidden by law. By 1646, Hopkins found that he couldn't go anywhere. Fewer and fewer towns and villages were willing to invite him in or give him money, and he ceased his witch-finding activities. After a three-year reign of terror, Matthew Hopkins died of pleural tuberculosis on the 12th of August, 1647, and he was buried at the Church of St Mary at Mistley Heath. He was 25. Witch hunting began to abate in the 17th century. Better legal procedures were put in place to protect innocent people. Better evidence and better court procedures were required. Almost every person convicted in the witch hunts were not doing witchcraft. They were the victims of false accusations and confessions elicited through depravity and torture. The last person to be legally executed for witchcraft in the British Isles was a lady called Janet Horne in 1727. She was imprisoned on the accusations of neighbours. Horne showed signs of senility and her daughter had a deformity of the hands and feet. The neighbours accused Horne of having used her daughter as a pony to ride to the devil where she had her shod by him. The trial was conducted very quickly. Janet was smeared with tar, paraded through the town on a barrel and burned alive. Nine years after her death, the Witchcraft Acts were repealed in Scotland. The Witchcraft Act of 1735 marked a complete reversal in attitudes. Witchcraft by that time was considered by many influential figures to be an impossible crime. The witch hunt in East Anglia was part of a wider phenomena in which approximately 110,000 people, the majority of which were women, were prosecuted for the crime of witchcraft across Europe between 1450 and 1750 and in which up to 60,000 were executed. We should all be incredibly grateful for the end of such horrific maltreatment of our fellow human beings, often based on nothing other than the disapproval of an accused person's lifestyle or the offering of an imagined slur or insult towards a spiteful 
or vengeful adversary. The witch hunts of the 16th century, enabled by a country in chaos, ended with a whimper. They say it takes a village to hang a witch, and we need to be ever watchful. Otherwise, with the right encouragement, any of us might start to see witches in our own neighbourhoods. 